Hi, this is Matthew Cowan, the founder of Digital Futures, a Caribbean-based consultancy aimed at helping small businesses understand and better use digital technologies. I'm also the author of the Future is Digital newsletter. I'm glad you're here listening to this narrated version. The full text is available on the website at thefutureisdigital.substack.com. Please take a moment to rate this on Apple Podcasts and to share it to your friends. On to this week's issue. The 16th of July, 2020. The Digital Caribbean and the Digital Reality. Today's essay is a slightly longer one. It'll take a couple more minutes to read than is custom for my essays. The subject is broad and couldn't be condensed without losing some of the finer details. I hope you don't mind. This essay is based on a small presentation I did to talk about COVID-19 and how we could kickstart after the worst of the pandemic is over. This essay expands on the first part of that presentation, exploring the themes in more detail. Look out for the second part in the near future. Enjoy. Your feedback is welcome. The Digital Caribbean I've written here several times about the state of digital in the Caribbean, and I encourage you to read those earlier essays. You can find them all in the archives. Click on the link. However, what I didn't emphasise is just how connected we all are in the Caribbean, but only connected in ways that are mostly ephemeral. Out of the nearly 44 million people in the Caribbean, around 77%, that's 33.5 million people, are connected with a data-capable mobile phone. More than 26 million people connect to the internet using a computer. But critically, over 50% of us regularly use social networks, a percentage that is higher than in most places in the entire world. Which begs the question, why are our services, our stores and our governments not online? It would appear that COVID-19 might be the impetus that finally changes that. And I think that we have more chance that this will change because of this pandemic rather than an earthquake or even a hurricane. I feel that we are in a big forced experiment where the entire world is collectively conscious at the same time and that we all have the same amount of control on our outcomes, which is entirely different from a natural disaster that A, we have virtually no control of our outcomes and B, nothing works during the disaster event. If you look at the islands in the North Leewards that suffered greatly in the 2017 hurricane season with Irma and Maria and the Bahamas during last year's terrifying and unimaginably tragic passing of Hurricane Dorian, all islands affected suffered a complete breakdown of most, if not all, services, digital services included. With COVID-19, there has been virtually zero downtime and zero outages. Sure, many people could not work when their jobs were centred around physically being at work, but those who could work, albeit remotely, continued with relatively little effort, if we ignore Zoom fatigue, that is, which is a real thing, see link. To answer the above question, I'm noticing more and more services coming online, like the recently announced online immigration and customs form for travelling to Barbados. It's great to see this move, but it provokes a question about why it took so long. The real answer, of course, is the will, or lack thereof. There are virtually no technical reasons in 2020 to not have most services online. It was even possible 10 years ago. And even those services that cannot be completed fully online, a major component can be digitised to make the process easier. Quite often, in the companies I consult for, 
I see multi-step manual processes in use, despite the company being willing to digitize its processes. For example, A goes to B to C. These processes cling on in manual form, often because process A cannot be easily or successfully digitized, despite B and C being eligible. The result is the abandonment of the digital process change. There are, of course, at least two ways to go about this. One is to digitize processes B and C, with process A being manually entered into the system for B and C to run the data. Or as I tend to analyze, why not rethink the process from start to finish, seeing if there is a way to digitize not only B and C, but part of A. It looks like this. A1 is a manual process. A goes into A2 digital to B to C. Going a step further, the process can be redesigned, considering the desire to eliminate manual processes. X to Y to Z, for example. X, Y and Z achieves the same goals, but the data entry and data processing are reorganized to eliminate as much manual entry as possible. In this case, this new process no longer resembles the original process. I'm simplifying the work, of course, but you get the picture. The digital reality. We're living in a new digital reality and approaching an inflection point where the majority of our lives will be online and those that fail to embrace and affect change will feel the pain in many areas of their society, which is why these first steps cannot come soon enough and why politicians and businesses need to start to radically change their minds to adapt to what is coming, not what is current. So how do we achieve this? The first thing to understand is the current state of affairs. My writing on the current state of digital in the Caribbean goes some ways towards this, but further research is needed to look further into the economic, socio-political and business world in the region. Again, I'm doing some of this and intend to do even more going forward, but funding is needed for this to be more widespread. See graphic, the new digital reality. A few examples of my research can be briefly summarised here in five important categories. Discovery, purchasing, payments, aggregation or uberization, and automation. Let's take a quick peek at each of those in turn. Discovery. In a world of virtually infinite information, content generation, and a never-ending avalanche of information flow, we can extrapolate that the chances of information types we want do not exist at virtually zero. In other words, the information is there somewhere. The issue is in finding that information. This is initially where Google stepped in. Google understood that the exponential growth of websites on the internet would render the old model of listings and directories useless at best and dissuasive at worst. Google's trick was to ignore the direct listings of names and URLs and concentrate on understanding the relationships between online sites. PageRank was designed around this principle and was implemented to provide more relevant results to people's searches. Up to that point, the internet had logically reproduced the physical yellow pages world. As a result, a whole new industry was born around getting better visibility for businesses on the internet. It's called Search Engine Optimization, or SEO for short. A name born in a generation when search was a primary tool used online. This name is already becoming redundant as the optimization is not restricted to search engines, 
but relevant to all online platforms like Twitter, Facebook, etc., which run their own in-house developed algorithms of the user's content. Purchasing. Purchasing habits were being fundamentally altered even before COVID-19 hit. Today's purchasing can be easily resumed as a few words. Buy online, pick up in store. According to Cudini, a specialist SaaS retail experience company, in a recent survey, see link, 76% of respondents said they had purchased items using in-store pickup after researching and evaluating online. This is only part of the story, as the online retail giants like Amazon are putting greater effort into reducing friction at the point of sale, enabling easier and faster consumption. And despite this, there is still room for the niche markets to be highly profitable businesses, simply because of the sheer scale of the internet. A niche on the internet is a misnomer. Payments. There is an ongoing trend of mass democratisation emerging in the financial world. Banking is being disrupted, with online-only banks not only reducing friction to access your money, but providing more timely services for a fraction of the cost of traditional banks. And as nothing exists in a vacuum, traditional banks are not ignoring this and are implementing new strategies to ensure survival. For example, pivoting some sectors as online banks using a different brand. Consolidation in the back end additionally helps capitalise on the opportunity to become the guarantor for the online banks. Payments are being simplified and increasingly more integrated with online platforms, from everything from membership systems to complete online marketplaces. Stripe is probably the most known and capable in the industry. However, more and more banks are starting to roll out their own online payment solutions. Not willing to let Stripe eat their lunch so easily, they are hoping to keep their clients in-house. They'll need to be careful of hidden fees, simplicity and friction reduction to do this, something the banks have shown that they're not very good at up until now. Investing is also opening up and becoming easier for the public. Efforts like Betterment and Wealthfront are only the first step of a wholesale dismantling of the staid and exclusive boys clubs that are current investment bankers. Not only that, as we'll see later, but their use of technology is also outperforming traditional investment experts. See the link. Quote, Betterment portfolios outperformed average advised portfolios 88% of the time. Aggregation and Uberization Aggregation is largely an internet phenomenon. It's an extension of a well-trodden path from the powerful retailers using their muscle to keep clients coming back, thereby using that power to entice suppliers to prioritise their stores, being that the stores can guarantee customers, rinse and repeat. The traditional giant stores like Macy's and Debenhams rode this wave for several decades, With digital distribution being essentially free, the value chain has been turned upside down, meaning that those who integrate throughout the value chain and commoditize their supply generally increase their profit over the incumbents. The Uberization of services is another trend that appears unstoppable for now. Uberization facilitates a peer-to-peer driven business model, enabled through the use of technology to simplify the on demand delivery of physical goods and services. The growing use of mobile and the constant connection to the internet allowed Uber 
to deliver an application that works for both drivers and passengers, hooking them up without the need for a central taxi operator to get involved. The model has been further developed and exploited by food delivery services. Interestingly, Uber has just acquired Postmates, see link, on the back of a decreasing amount of mobility and an increasing amount of online ordering. It doesn't take a giant leap to see how this could become a deliver-anything service. Automation Automation, more specifically machine learning and artificial intelligence, are the last key element. Their democratization by the Microsofts of the world, see Azure Cognitive Services, see link, is allowing a completely new generation of software designs. Simple operations like the scanning and treatment of receipts direct to accounting software are freeing up administrative staff to be better used in more valuable roles. Even simple workflow systems like Microsoft Power Automate can tap directly into the APIs of these services and perform simple repetitive tasks as an aid to decision making. Which brings me to the availability of online automation products, of which IFTTT was probably the first to hit notoriety. If this, then that, simplified the creation of fun automation that switched on your lights as you neared your home, or flash the lights in the colours of your favourite team when they scored. It went even further by hooking into popular SaaS products allowing you to join together previously disparate systems. Zapier and Power Automate take this much further, with examples of users replacing no longer supported legacy software with modern workflows that are modulable and allow for data analysis, unlike the systems they replace. The second step is try to envisage what the future will bring. Easier said than done, but current affairs do give us a few hints at what the future may hold for the internet and business on the internet. In my research, three factors come up time and time again. Regulation, health and information misuse. See graphic. Regulation. I like memes, so I couldn't resist. See graphic. The EU has restarted efforts on its Digital Services Act, a far-reaching proposal to regulate artificial intelligence and data collection. Even the traditionally Wild West US is hauling its biggest tech CEOs to testify before Congress in an investigation to determine if the AAAF, i.e. Alphabet, Amazon, Apple and Facebook, are using anti-competitive practices. They are. We can expect the end to the free-for-all that is the current posture in most countries. Regulation will affect not only the giants online, but all the supporting systems and smaller operations. GDPR was only a first attempt, but its implementation has given impetus for the next wave of regulation. One that will bite harder, there is no question. Regulation will not just stop at competition and data harvesting but it will also start to regulate what information can and cannot be published on the internet, much like how traditional media cannot publish absolutely anything. The days of self-regulation are soon over, as, just like the banks, the internet is incapable of regulating itself effectively. Regulation will be very difficult and full of competing ideologies pulling against each other. Just how we are going to shoehorn a global internet into the current state of political divisions around the world is still open to question for the moment. I suspect the EU will move first, 
and any businesses that are in some way reliant on the EU will feel the early pain, including us here in the Caribbean. Health. When I discuss health, I'm talking about what is increasingly a difficult subject for parents and concerned parties like schools and businesses, that of digital health. Often reduced, incorrectly, in my view, to screen time, digital health will become a subject that every employer and supplier has to be cognizant of. They will be forced to take into account when developing systems and processes to prevent people from being adversely affected. Employers will have to better discern good screen time from bad to ensure their employees are not overly exposed to bad screen time. But what is bad screen time? How do we define it? How do we measure it effectively? How do we control it? These and many other questions are starting to be debated the world over. Like regulation, it is only a matter of time before it becomes a central aspect of your digitalization strategy. Information misuse. The most prominent danger for those of us who spend most of our working and personal lives online is fake news. A phrase the short-fingered vulgarian, see Link, in the White House likes to overuse when attacking his imagined foes. But fake news is absolutely real, and ironically often created and perpetuated by the likes of Mr. Drumpf, see Link. It is the fact that it is easy to produce and distribute, making it such a danger to the world, and contributes to making it difficult to regulate. Another problematic innovation we are seeing in currently limited use is that of deep fakes, C-Link. They're not completely indistinguishable to real photos, film or audio, C-Link, but they are getting better, and with the use of machine learning, their efficacy is accelerating. Legislation and regulation have not and likely will not catch up with these developments anytime soon. It's a disaster waiting to happen if it hasn't already and we just haven't noticed yet. Interesting times. In summary, we can see that digital integration of business is evolving and accelerating, in part due to the current pandemic and in part because of the natural changes in a society that is more exposed to digital than previously. Customers in the Caribbean are becoming more digital, although not for the reasons we thought they would, convenience and availability, but for reasons more to do with safety in the face of a virus we still know little about. We see business and structural changes brought about by investment or governmental and organisational willingness to face one of the most damaging crises we've seen to date. We also see that the very nature of the internet is about to change, and change significantly, with more and more governments and populations favouring some form of regulation. It is only a matter of time before a whole section of the internet come under some framework of operations that have previously been rejected. Media, social media, and sales of goods and services are likely the first areas regulated, but make no mistake, regulation will follow for everything else soon after. The fact that the internet provides a scale of possibilities hitherto unseen logically means that regulation will affect on a mass scale too. Even without the pandemic, we were living in interesting times. Adding COVID-19 to the mix has been like pouring water into a boiling chip pan. See link. Hold on tight. If you like this narrated version of the newsletter, please share it with your friends and take a moment to rate it on your podcast app. It really helps. 
The website holds an archive of all past issues that are freely available. It's a great resource on the topic of digital business. Thanks for being a supporter, and don't forget to follow me on Twitter at TFID underscore newsletter, where I sometimes post about the research I'm currently conducting for future issues. It's also a great place to give feedback. Thanks again. Have a great day.